interrupt, but I have something to say, so. And you know, when you have something to say, you want to say it, right? All right. Well, it's good that the, the first row has been reserved for nobody. And it's no matter where I go in the world. Well, there we have somebody. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you feel like you're nobody, but I didn't, you weren't sitting there when I said that. So anyway, the back row is always the popular row. The front row is nobody ever sits, sits in the front row. I like the front row because I don't get distracted by all what's going on behind me. Well, anyway, it's good to be with you again this morning, and I'm always surprised when um, I get invited back and and people come a second time. They either didn't hear what was said the first time or they're masochists, so I don't know which it is. But this morning, we're going to look at a, um, a character trait or a attribute, if you would, of Jesus that... Um, is often not considered. Uh, when you think of Jesus, let me start by asking you a question. When you think of Jesus, what character trait or attribute do you think of? Love, yeah. That's the most popular one, and we're thankful for that. What else? Humility. That's not too often thought of, but yes. Humility, kind, compassionate, right? Pardon me? Obedient. Obedient. Yes, that's right. Many different ones, don't we? And the one we're going to look at this morning is, I didn't really give this much um, study, but as I was just thinking about it, and you can prove me wrong afterwards, but... It's the only one that Jesus uses to describe himself by. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this portion of Scripture, but maybe you didn't look at it in this light before. In Matthew chapter 11, it's this... Uh, invitation that Jesus gives to all to come to him. And in verse 28, we read that Jesus speaking says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And here's the self-description that he gives about himself. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't see Jesus describing himself other places that I am loving. He doesn't say that of himself. He doesn't say that I am slow to anger. Now, the Bible does describe God that way, but not out of the mouth of Jesus. He doesn't say of himself, I am compassionate, though we see through his actions, he's compassionate. He will say, I have compassion upon them, but he doesn't use that to describe himself. Only here, and again, I could be wrong. Please prove me if I'm wrong. I appreciate that. And I can, next time I talk about it, I can say, usually he only. But here, he describes himself in verse 29 as meek and lowly in heart. And the, what we're going to look at this morning is that of humility, that of being humble. And um, it's certainly not a characteristic that is talked about much, well, certainly not in the world, and very little even within the church, though it should be. There should be a far greater amount of time spent on this not just character of Jesus, but if we're going to follow Jesus, then humility should be something that exists within us, right? 
as a follower of Christ, shouldn't we be loving as he is loving? Shouldn't we be forgiving as he is forgiving? Shouldn't we be compassionate as he is compassionate? Patient as he is patient? All those. Well, this one as well. And yet, for some reason, it seems to have escaped much of the church. In fact, oftentimes, just the opposite is either taught directly or indirectly. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we go any further, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for who you are, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. How amazing that is. And we should be in awe of that. And that in revealing yourself to us, you also reveal ourselves to uh, to us as well and of our need of you and so lord i pray that you would open our eyes this morning to not just to see you more clearly but lord to see ourselves as we truly are that we wouldn't any longer think more highly of ourselves than we ought but rather lord that we would heed your word that tells us to come humbly before the Lord. And Father, that you would just silence all the distractions right now. Uh, those things in our life, past, present, and future, that oftentimes distract us from hearing your voice. And I pray as well that you would break up any and all fallow ground, hardness of heart, callousness of heart that exists within us that would resist what you would say to us today. And in so doing, Father, that your word would find its way deep into our hearts, that it might be planted and watered and grow and bear fruit to your glory. So we thank you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, considering this characteristic, this attribute of Jesus. I want to go a little bit further and turn in your Bibles with me. And we are going to be looking at the Bible a lot. Uh, my style of teaching is I firmly believe that God can do a far better job explaining his word than I can. So I always like to use the scriptures to, um, to do that. And so turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> Paul, in writing to the Philippians, tells us in verse 5, to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The subject of this is the mind of Christ. And so as we're looking at this, we should be asking, well, what was the mind of Christ? Here Paul says, let this mind, this attitude, this way of thinking be in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. So we should be asking, well, what was the mind of Christ, right? Well, Paul explains to us what it is in the next three verses. Who being in the form, in verse 6, of, of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And I'll explain that real quickly. It's very simply this, that Jesus being God did not count it robbery to be equal with God. If you or I were to say, I'm God, what would we be doing? we would be robbing God, right? Because we're not God. But because he is God, to be considered to be equal with God, he wasn't robbing God at all of any of God's glory because he is God. Make sense to you? Let's go on to verse 7. And again, we're looking at the mind of, of Christ that we're told to have. But made himself of no reputation. This was the mind of Christ. This was the attitude of Christ. He made himself of no reputation. He who created the heavens and the earth. He who, Paul tells us in Colossians, holds everything in its place. Nothing came into existence except by him and through him. He made himself of no reputation. Continuing on in verse 7, and took upon him the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. This is all the mind. This is all the attitude of Christ that Paul says, this is what we need to have. And then in verse 8 
he says, and being found in fashion as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself. Amazing. The creator of the heavens and the earth humbled himself. And this is the mind of Christ that, and it's the character of Christ, that though Jesus described himself in such a way, we see the humility of Christ portrayed over and over and over again in his life. Puny little man talking to him as if he were a bastard. What's a bastard? Well, a bastard is an illegitimate child, not knowing who's, who the father was. That's how they looked at Jesus. Here was the creator of the heavens and the earth receiving such scorn and mockery from the ones he created. Humility. Who on the cross could have called down legions of angels and wiped out those who put him on the cross, who could have kept himself from going to the cross, who could have at any moment there in the garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to get him with swords and spears. He could have called, well, he could have called legions of angels, but we know what one angel did in the Old Testament, wiped out 185,000 people like that. But he didn't. He humbled himself, never defended himself, never took things into his own hands when Satan tempted him, as we read the record there in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Satan came and said, if you are the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. He could have done that, but he didn't. You see, in Christ, we see not just humility, but the greatest mark of humility, and get this, dear ones, is his absolute, complete surrender to the Father. And that is something that I hope you begin to pray into your own life. That is the mark of humility, of that just complete surrender to the will of God. He said of himself, I speak nothing of my own. I speak only that which my Father has given to me. I do nothing of my own, only that which my Father has totally surrendered, totally submitted to the will of the Father. Well, let's take a look at how God views humility. Again, let's turn to some scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And I would encourage you to mark these verses down. Read them again later, but not just read them. But cast yourself upon the throne of grace and cry out to God to work these things into your own life. We're looking at right now how God views humility. And as you're turning to Psalm 51, let me just begin by tailing off of that, that trait of Christ, not just of humility, but that of just total surrender to the will of the Father what did the Father say of his Son on a number of occasions? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Totally submitted to the will of the Father. And to which the Father would say, I'm well pleased. Keep that in mind, dear ones. Because the antithesis of humility, as we'll look at in just a moment, is what? Pride. And we're going to see what God thinks of pride. He hates it. He despises it. But he's well pleased with humility. 
He was well pleased with humility in the life of his son. And so in Psalm 51, verse 17, David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God takes pleasure in that. Along the same lines, in Isaiah chapter 57, turn there with me if you would. You're going to get to know your Bible a little bit better this morning. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. This works great for those that are dyslexic because it's the same numbers that Psalm 51, 17. They're just kind of switched around a little bit. But in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Who's speaking? Who does that describe? God, right? And so this is God speaking, and he's going to tell us what is it that he says. Well, let's read on. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is what? Of a contrite and humble spirit. Again, we're looking at what God thinks, how God views humility. This is whom he chooses to dwell with. The person who is humble. The person who is of a contrite heart. And then it continues just to finish the verse, to revive the spirit of what? The humble. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Just a few more chapters to the right in Isaiah. Go to the last chapter in Isaiah, chapter 66, and let's look at verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things hath been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to that of him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Poor is not monetarily poor, but another word is humble. That person who is humble. This is who God looks for, to pour himself into. He won't pour himself into the proud man, the proud woman but to the humble man, to the broken man, the broken, contrite person. That's who the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whom he might dwell within. This is God's view. In the New Testament, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 and 6, we read this. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And so he's not just talking younger to older. He's saying this is a part of humility, of submitting yourself one to another. It's not just the older guys that can say, hey, you do this and you do that. that even the older guys should be submitting one to another. And he goes on and says, and be, what? Clothed with humility. It should be such a part of your life, just like, well, we're all clothed this morning, aren't we? That's, humility should be such a part of my life, just like clothes are a part of my life. Why? Well, look at the rest of the verse. For God, or because, what does God do to the proud? He resists the proud. Again, we're looking at God's view of humility. He resists the proud. But what does he do to the humble? He gives grace. Which, which side of the spectrum do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the spectrum where God says, 
Or do you want to be on the side of the spectrum where God is just giving you grace upon grace? But understand this, dear ones. He doesn't give grace to the ones that are on this side of the spectrum. He resists the proud. But to the humble, to the broken, he gives grace upon grace. And so let's talk about the antithesis of humility, pride. Let's talk about that. How does God view pride? It's important that we understand this because, you see, in the world that we live in today, pride is esteemed. The proud man, the proud woman is looked up to, is sought after, and yet not by God, not by any means. And so we don't want to confuse what the world values with what God values. And yet there is a great deal of confusion in the church among God's people. There's many that are seeking after that place of esteem, that place of recognition, that place of power, and all that that the world values so much. When we should be seeking after that which God esteems and God values. James says, we looked at this last week, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what? He will lift you up. We're too busy trying to lift up ourselves for God to have any hand in there to lift us up. But it's not until we humble ourselves before the Lord that we give God the occasion to lift us up. And so let's talk about pride for a moment and how God views it and, and some of the the Results of pride. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. In verses 16 through 19. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. That's strong language, dear ones. It's not like, it's not, he's not saying, well, he kind of doesn't really like these things. An abomination is a, is a horrible thing. And it's greatly detested by the Lord. And what do you see is the first thing on the list? Pride, a haughty look. That's, that's pride, right? Above all, everything else. And, and again, everything in the Bible is there for a reason, and, and the order of things is there for a reason as well. And at the top of the list of things that God hates, it's pride. And so, if God hates that, and he hates these other six things that are listed a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood and, and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations and so on and so forth, it would do you well. It would do me well to hate them as well. And they're easy to hate in the lives of others, but you better start hating them first in your own life. And when it says, just to kind of clarify things a little bit, when it says... Um, Hands that shed innocent blood, you don't have to literally shed blood with your hands. You can do it with your mouth by gossiping and cutting people down and, and so on and so forth. There, there's a lot of character assassination that occurs without ever shooting a firearm. It's with your mouth. And so let it begin in your own life to, to have that hatred towards those things. I tell my students at our school of discipleship, find out the things that God hates and you start hating them also. Good thing to do. Important thing to do. Well, also in Proverbs chapter 26, turn there with me if you would. Again, I want to remind you what we're looking at and why we're looking at it. We're looking at what God thinks about pride the opposite of humility. 
Proverbs 26, verse 12. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope for a fool than him. Wow. More hope for a fool than someone who is proud. Continuing on, and and this verse just astounds me. In Daniel chapter 5, turn there if you would please with me, Daniel chapter 5. The scene of Daniel chapter 5 is Belshazzar's having quite the party. He's got a thousand of his homies with them, and they're just drinking and carrying on, and he calls for the the implements of the temple that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and they start to drink out of them, and they praise the gods of gold and silver, and all of a sudden, on the wall appears a hand. Not a man with a hand, but just a hand. And it begins to write some things upon the wall. At which time, Belshazzar sobers up quite quickly. And he trembles. He's scared to death. And he calls for all the soothsayers and the astrologers to try to um, interpret what has been written on the wall. And they cannot do it. And the queen remembers an old guy now, Daniel, who his grandfather had known and used many a times. And so Daniel comes. And before Daniel translates what is written on the wall, he confronts Belshazzar, the king, the most powerful man in all the world, who could have just off with his head. And that could have been the end of Daniel. But Daniel fears nothing because he fears God. And listen to what he says. In verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. You see, the king had said, I will give help to half the kingdom. And Daniel realized, Your kingdom's history, man. I don't, what's half of nothing? I don't think, it's nothing. Maybe double nothing, I don't know, but he knows his kingdom's going to be taken from him, so what's, you can give me all the riches in the world and it's not going to do any good. And so he says, you just keep them. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. But before he does that, listen carefully. He says, O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father, or more accurately, thy grandfather, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. He makes clear that Belshazzar understands that all that Nebuchadnezzar had was not done by his own hands. God gave it to him. Verse 19. And for the majesty that he, that is God, gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. And this is the verse. Listen carefully to this verse. But when his heart, who? Nebuchadnezzar, was lifted up, What happened? His mind was hardened. That is a horrible byproduct of pride. When one's heart is lifted up, when a man or woman is proud, their mind becomes hard. They don't make sensible decisions. Do you understand that? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had been warned a year prior to, to uh, not this, but he had been warned by Daniel, this kingdom that you have, God gave it to you, everything that you have. Therefore, don't boast that it's something that you did on your own. 
<clears throat> and for one year, Nebuchadnezzar heeded those words of Daniel. And then a year passed, and as Nebuchadnezzar was looking over his kingdom, he said, this kingdom that I have gotten myself. What did pride do? Made him stupid. Seriously. Not being funny. Pride will make you stupid. To go against sound counsel. And he suffered as a result of that. What happened? God struck him. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was a crazy man. He ran off out into the field and ate grass like a cow. His fingernails grew like that of an eagle. His hair, he had the wildest dreadlocks going. And for seven years, he was crazy. Until God had mercy on him and brought him back to his right mind. At which time he proclaimed, there is no God but the true and living God. What a hard lesson to learn, huh? But you see, dear ones, here in verse 20, <clears throat> what happens when we lift our heart, our mind up in pride, our heart, our, our mind, I should say, becomes hardened. Great danger, for sure. And God allows that to happen when we won't acknowledge him, when we won't humble ourselves before him, and it is an utter foolish choice to make. And yet so many make them. And I'm not talking about in the world. It's obvious in the world, but many that stand behind the pulpit. They begin to think that their success is because of them. It's because of their intellectual abilities or their charisma, or whatever it is that they think, delusionally so, that things are going well when it's all by the grace of God. Paul was very careful to always acknowledge, I am what I am by the grace of God. Anything that's good that's happening in my life, it's solely because of God's grace. It's in spite of me. And God helped him keep that perspective, but it's an important perspective to keep. And not just for the pastor, but for any one of us. Your job, whatever it is that you're doing, and you're experiencing any hint of what we would consider success, don't ever think it's because of you. It's solely because of God and his grace. Well, just a few other verses, and we won't turn there. I think you're familiar with them. You can write them down and look at them later. But in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 14, Jesus, in talking about this very thing, and, and specifically about prayer, he said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And he, in essence, said, Lord, here I am. I do this, I do that. I'm not like other men. And then the tax gatherer who went up to the temple to pray at the same time wouldn't even look up into heaven, but kept his head low and beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To which Jesus said, that man, the one who was humble, God heard. But the proud man, his prayers went only up to the ceiling of the temple never made it to heaven. That's what God, that's how God views the proud man. And so, as we come back to this very important subject of humility, we have to realize that humility is not a characteristic known naturally in man. It doesn't exist. And I've been all over the world. I just came from Mexico before coming here. And you know, the Mexican people are very proud people. The day before that, I was in Cuba. The people in Cuba are very proud people. 
And as I've come here to Australia a few times now, I realize, you know, the Aussies are a pretty proud people. And every time I go back to America, I'm slapped in the face with that reality as well. Those Americans, of which I'm one, are very proud people. Humility is not a natural tendency of man. <clears throat> There's some factors that we should consider, and I hope you do more than consider them, but that bring a man, a woman, into that place of humility. Because again, <clears throat> though humility is not our natural tendency, it is what God delights in. And so if our natural tendency is not to be humble, do you think we're going to humble ourselves? No. Even though God admonishes us to, God works in our life to bring us to that place where he can give grace upon grace. And even his work in our life to bring us to that place of humility is his grace, right? I mean, we don't deserve that. We deserve his judgment because of our pride, because of our stubbornness, because of our thinking that we're all that when we're really nothing. And so his grace is at work. But let's, let's consider some of the avenues of which God works to bring us to that place of humility before him. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. I remember correctly, one of the times I was here I taught on this as Pastor Ben was going through Isaiah. It was a year in which King Uzziah died and he, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train, his robe, was filling the temple. And there in the temple as Isaiah was looking up, he saw the angels, the seraphim, flying around the, the throne of God. With two wings they covered their feet because they were in the presence of God. With two wings they covered their eyes. And with two wings they flew. <clears throat> and as they flew around the throne of God, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And... This is one of the most important aspects of bringing a man, of bringing a woman to humility. And that is to see the Lord. To truly see the Lord. Because you see, only in truly seeing the Lord are you able to truly see yourself. And it greatly troubles, well, it kind of troubles me and not too much anymore. But these people that say they've been to heaven, and they saw the Lord. And they talk as if they just met their best friend and walked down the street to have a cup of coffee. Well, everyone that I see in the Bible who sees the Lord, including Isaiah, doesn't look at God as being their best buddy or their mate. They fall on their face before the Lord and they say, oh, woe is me for I am undone. You see, when you truly see the Lord, whether it's through his scriptures or through a message or the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you can't help but to see yourself for who and what you really are. And Isaiah does that. In verse 5, he says, Woe is me. For I am undone, which literally means I'm melted on the spot. Why? Because he saw the Lord. <clears throat> and he realized that the Lord is holy and he's not. And he was humbled before the Lord. And he recognized 
that he was a man of unclean lips. He was filthy in the sight of God. You see, that's what happens, dear ones. When, when you see the holiness of God, you see your unholiness, your wretchedness, your depravity. And that does nothing but humble you. And he also recognized that he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. And in recognizing that and acknowledging that, it gave God the opportunity to have an angel come and take a coal from the the altar and put it upon his lips and cleanse him. So too with you and I as we realize our own sinfulness and we cry out, oh God, I'm a sinful man. What does that avail God to do? To show mercy, to show grace, to forgive us and cleanse us. But what is it? What is necessary? Humility. To the proud man, to the proud woman that comes to God and says, here I am. No, thank you. But to the humble man, the humble woman, oh God. My sin is ever before me. I've sinned against you and you alone have I sinned. That offers God the opportunity to show his grace and his mercy. And forgive us and cleanse us and and clothe us with his righteousness. Peter, in a very similar way, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 5, Jesus had been preaching and the crowd had grown so much and so Peter was there in his boat and he asked, Peter, can I get in your boat and cast off a little bit so I can use the natural amplification that I created of the water and preach to the multitude, of which he did. And when he was finished, he said, Peter, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll catch a great catch. Peter only cast in one net and he pulled in a great catch so much that the the net began to tear. But at that moment, he caught a glimpse of who Jesus was. And it says, I think in verse 9, Peter fell on his face there in the boat before the Lord, and he said, Depart from me, for I am a wretched man. I'm a sinful man. Unfortunately, Peter didn't stay in that place of humility. Because as time would progress, we would find Peter in Matthew chapter 16, arguing with the Lord. Actually, even rebuking the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus says to all the disciples, all of you will turn away from me. Peter, again, contending with the Lord, says, even though everybody else does, I won't. He didn't stay in that place of humility. He thought he knew better than the Lord knew. And so God would continue to work in Peter's life and God would break him. We'll look at that in just a moment. <clears throat> but you see, it's, it's understanding who the Lord is that God uses to put humility into a man or woman. And dear ones, that's why it's so important that you're in the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that reveals God to you. And in revealing God to you, it also reveals the truth about you to you. And I know it's not a pretty picture, but it's an absolute necessary picture if we're going to be humble before the Lord and remain humble before the Lord. And in 40 years of ministry now, I'm convinced that that's the number one reason why most people don't spend any time in the Word because they don't want to be confronted with their sinfulness. They would like to think more highly of themselves than they should. And it's a deadly error, for sure. But we see in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, don't need to turn there, mark it down. We see the man of whom Jesus said, of among those born of women, there's none greater but John the Baptist. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, actually before Jesus showed up on the scene, John made the confession, he said, there's one coming who's greater than I, who's latched of his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. Think of that. 
a man of whom Jesus testified of those born of a woman, there was no one greater, not Elijah, not Moses, not any of those. And yet he viewed himself, John the Baptist, that is, of not even being worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. The centurion of Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, specifically in verse 7, <clears throat> he had asked the Lord to heal his servant. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house. And the centurion said, I'm not worthy that you come to my house. That's humility. Here was a centurion occupying Israel. Ruling over the people, ruling over a hundred men. And yet when he came face to face with the Lord, he said, I'm not worthy. This was a Roman. This was a Gentile. The Jews didn't even come close to being humble like that before their creator, their savior. <clears throat> Well, two other things that we're looking at, factors involved in bringing a man, a woman, to that place of humility. We've seen it's, it's seeing God for who he is, thus seeing my unworthiness as a result. But it's also <clears throat> the word of God. And this I do want you to turn to. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 with me, if you would. Hebrews chapter 4. In verses 12 and 13, we see <clears throat> given to us the nature of the Word of God. And again, because of the nature of the Word of God and what it does is why the vast majority of Christians, those that profess to be Christians, spend little to no time in the Word. Verse 12, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's very descriptive, isn't it? You see, the Word of God, one of the things the Word of God does, it reveals your real motives. Why you do the things that you do why you're here this morning, why you do some kind of service, or why you put 10, not quid, what is it here? Dollars, okay. In the offering box, whatever it is, the Word of God reveals the real motive, not just what you portray. But listen he goes on in verse 13, he says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, God uses his word to humble us, to reveal to us the truth about ourselves. Why I do what I do? Is it to be seen of men? Is it for the admiration of men? Or is it for the glory of God? What is God to you? Is he a means or is he an ends? Is he a way of getting something, getting somewhere, getting place, position? Or is he the prize that you desire? I hope it's the latter. I hope there's nothing that you desire more than Jesus Christ. To know him. To have him. And for him to have you. You see, it's not how much of Jesus you have. It's how much of you does he have. Is your life surrendered to him? Have you taken your life that doesn't really belong to you in the first place 
and laid it at his feet and say, Lord, here's my life. You purchased it, not with gold and silver and precious jewels, but with the precious blood of Jesus. I'm not my own. I belong to you. And there's no one worthy of my praise, of my life, of my breath in you. And the word of God is what God uses to bring a man, to bring a woman to that place of humility. And to keep them there. That's why it's important not just to read the word on occasion, but continue to be in the word. And be open and honest as you do that. Oh God, speak to me. Let the word of God cut me where I need to be cut. Let the word of God examine me. David cried out in Psalm 139, and I dare you to do this daily or regularly in your own life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way within me. Do you dare do that? It's much easier to go through life ignoring that, isn't it? Thinking that you're all that or your motives are pure and they're right and good. and Big mistake, though. But it's very humbling for the Lord to do that. And then for him to reveal the truth about you. Because the truth, gang, is not pretty. It's never been pretty as God's revealed it to me about me. And I'm a man of like passions as you are, and I venture to say it's not pretty when he reveals it to you. But it's absolutely necessary if you're going to walk humbly before the Lord. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it's a song we used to sing back in the old Calvary days. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee. But to do justly, to love mercy, what do you think the third one is? To walk humbly. That's what he requires. And so the final thing that God uses, as we bring this to a, a slow close, God uses all these things to break us. Every man, every woman who God uses is a man or woman who's been broken. He won't use the proud. I mean, he'll use the proud. He used Pharaoh, didn't he? But Pharaoh didn't benefit from it. He got drowned in the Red Sea. Moses. It came into his heart, we're told by Stephen in his first and only message that we have recorded for us as he's standing before the religious leaders talking about the history of the Jews. He says, and Moses, when he was of age, it came into his heart that the Jews should be set free. And at the age of 40, he took things into his own hands and tried to set free his fellow Hebrews. But it was in the flesh. It was his own way. And for the next 40 years, Moses spent being a fugitive in the wilderness. And during that time of of tending sheep, God was breaking him. So that at the age of 80, when God shows up on the scene to say, I want you to go and deliver my people, Moses said, who am I? I'm nobody. That's a good place to be. But unfortunately, he persisted in excuses of which we do as well, until God got angry and Moses relented and submitted himself to the Lord's will. But it took 40 years of breaking, of being out in the wilderness. Some of you don't have 40 years. I know I don't. You don't even know if you have today. That's why today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Submit, surrender, humble yourself before the Lord. We see Paul. Paul was a very proud man. His own testimony, if you would, of his 
life before he knew Jesus. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. He had reached the pinnacle of notoriety. And then he met Jesus one day on the road to Damascus. And he realized that all that he had strived for, all that he had sought to attain to, was nothing but dumb. In the eyes of God and in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ and not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And from that time forward, his life was ever changed, but he was a broken man. And God poured himself into Paul, and God used Paul in such a wonderful way. Paul was no different than you, no different than me. He was a man, but he was a broken man of whom God could pour himself into. Peter. <clears throat> We've already mentioned Peter a few times. Luke chapter 22, there that final argument with the Lord, thinking that Peter knew better than Jesus. And then, after three confrontations, the rooster crowed the second time, and Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken. You see, God uses the word of God. And he looked at Jesus, and Jesus looked at him, and he was broken. And he went out and wept bitterly, but now he was in a place where God could use Peter. Listen, dear ones. Again, God's not going to use you in your pride. Maybe you don't want to be used. Well, then stay proud. But you see, you exist for his glory, not for your own. He created you for his glory. He saved you for his glory. And therefore, there's no greater, higher honor that a creature can have than to bring glory and honor to his creator. And that comes only through a surrendered life. It comes through humility. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, write this down, read it. We're to put on humility. We read it already in 1 Peter 5, 5. We're to be clothed with humility. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we're to walk in humility. Humility. And finally, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, we're to avoid a false humility. Watch out for that. Oh, I'm nothing but a worm. I don't deserve anything. I, 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 I. The Pharisees had a false humility. And that stinks of pride. There's a genuine and there's a false. Beware of the false. And you know, how can you beware of it? Well, just ask the Lord to help you. To recognize it. He'll do that. I think I'm five minutes early in closing. Isn't that unusual? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm five minutes over. I, for some reason, I had 25 after in my mind, but as I look at the clock and ben, Ben's there winking at me, I realize that, no, I'm not five minutes early. I'm five minutes over. So sorry. Let's pray. And as the worship team comes up and leads us in a few more songs, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, that we may truly know you. Because as we really know you, there is no place for pride. So where we have contrived our own idea of you, forgive us and open our eyes to the truth of you. May we see you high and lifted up in your train filling the temple. And may we realize the truth about ourselves that we are men and women of unclean lips and totally unworthy of you.
But Lord, how thankful we are that you look upon us and as a father pitieth his son, so you pity those who fear you. And so God, may we have that godly fear in our hearts before the true and living God, that we would humble ourselves before you and allow you to do all that you want to do in our lives. And may we always be careful and quick to give you all the praise and all the glory for the great things that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.